0: Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweibach. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Rabbi Susan Silverman, my teacher and colleague and friend. She's the founder of Second Nurture, a nonprofit that I'm proud to be involved with an organization dedicated to supporting a path from foster care to adoption. You'll also get to hear about her book, Casting Lots, Creating a Family in a Beautiful Broken World, which tells the story of her own family. You're going to be inspired. You're going to love this conversation. Stay tuned.
1: And we can just explain it's short because you were late.
0: We'll just say I gave you terrible directions. (laughs) And, no, see, that's my job to fall on the sword for you. Oh, yeah. Rabbi Susan Silverman, my friend, my colleague, my Jerusalem neighbor. Even though I don't live in Jerusalem anymore, you're still my Jerusalem neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so glad that you're here back in America on a visit. And I guess we could just dive right in and you could tell us a little bit about Second Nurture, which I am proud Full disclosure, proud to be a part of. From uh, the time you created it, I've gotten to play a small role, and that has been a great honor for me. Um, but tell us how you got this idea, and how did you, how did you create this incredible nonprofit, and why?
1: Well, Yoshi, I could not have done it without you because I had this insane idea, and I called you. I said, "Will you be on this board of this 501c3?" And you said, "Yes," and so thus it was created. Um, I've always had a passion for kids in foster care and I grew up in a family that fostered kids. So I saw that up close and also I'm a rabbi and I really believe strongly in the power of community. And so I sort of put the two together and thought, wow, you know, there are so many people who have considered fostering and haven't done it. What is that bridge? How can we bring people forward to foster kids? And I thought community you know if we, people have community support they very well might move forward and and, and do this and so cuz
0: it's hard it's not something that is simple or easy both in terms of the logistics and administrative components of it it's complicated right dealing with the state and there's there's lots of paperwork and other things correct
1: Yeah, it's daunting. It's daunting on every single level. Parenting in general is daunting. Foster parenting is extra daunting. The process itself is overwhelming. And fostering itself- And it's
0: emotionally, it's a huge thing. It's not like maybe we'll pick up a goldfish. We're talking about a human being that you are going to take care of and be responsible for. And often it's well, I guess always it's a human being who's gone through something very difficult, and which is why they're in the system. What are some of the um, what are some of the things that that, uh, that you've found to be surprising in terms of the challenges? Because I'm sure a lot of them were known to you, but are there things that you've learned over you know the last decade of of this kind of work that you said, and I never even realized that that was hard or that that was hard.
1: Yeah, so uh, I've learned a lot over the years, and one thing that I've learned is that, you know, the, the I mean, I always suspected, of course, that there's injustice in any big system, um, but learning about the injustices in the in the foster care system and learning uh, about the racial discrepancy and the lower bar in which brown and black kids are taken out of their families, and then thinking, okay, if we're promoting fostering, how do, are we not complicit? In that, How do we not be complicit? And not only not be complicit, but how do we work against it? And so that's been something that our board has been working hard on and that we've been thinking a lot about. And I think that we have some positive ways of responding to that. Um, also, in terms of... So being
0: complicit, meaning we're citizens, we're taxpayers, we're, we're part of the system. And if the system isn't working, we have a responsibility to get involved and try to make things better, especially when we're talking about children.
1: Right. So that level, but also if we are promoting fostering among, among our community families and we're saying, hey, you know, there are 35,000 kids in LA County who need foster families, step up and do it. What about when there are kids who um, are from families that really could raise them? You know, are we just going to sort of foster those kids and move forward as if there's no backstory there, as if there's no um, injustice that's happened, as if there's no, like, heartbreak? And so thinking about that and thinking about not being complicit in those, that family being separated, right? And so we are not policy people, we are not the judges uh, who decide these cases, but we can say... We want to know what this situation is. We want to say we want we want to have a special kind of program where we're able to foster kids uh, and support the biofamily in getting it together and toward reunification. We can in the role that we already do, we can be a part of of a solution and to partner with people who do have that power so that we can be so that we can uh, we can move this forward in a positive way
0: what gave you the Idea. I mean, obviously, you know about community and its power, personally, from your own experience in Jewish community and you know, more broadly in other communities that you're a part of. But this idea that we could find a way for the community to support this in a, in a deeper fashion and bring a faith community together. You know, in, in my conversations with you, you've taught me so much about this over the years, you know, but that really was like no one else was doing that. And in some ways, it seems so obvious, like, well, of course, you know, we we even say things like, well, it takes a village, well, and then, like, let's have the village help in this. But no one else had done that. What what gave you that insight, you think?
1: You know, I sort of sat down and I thought, what do I want to create? Like, I'm going to start stop kind of perseverating about the issue and do something about it, right? And so...
0: This is beyond adopting two children of your own, which I think everyone right. would say, eh,
1: well, she
0: did something about Isn't it, it. but now you were thinking more systemically, thinking okay? So systemically. I've done this for my own family and I've done this for these two amazing sons, but how could I do this for, how can I scale this?
1: Yeah. How can I scale this? How can I make a difference systemically? You know, and also, you know, you know very well because you're involved in these issues and lots of people we know are involved in these issues, but you know, aging out of foster care is the number one feeder into incarceration, sex trafficking, homelessness, drug abuse, like it's, it's just a feeder to all these things. So we need to go upstream and divert kids from that, from that path. And so thinking about all of these issues and thinking about how we move people forward to be that safety net that every single child needs Uh, I sort of came up with this idea of like starting with the context of a community. And lots of foster care agencies, they create support systems for their families, and they do it well. The difference here is that I thought, we don't want to just support the families, that's important, but we also want to bring more families forward. So what if we start with the community, and we say, hey, your community cares about this. Your community is stepping up for kids in foster care and they see it happening and they meet people who are doing it and they trust their community. They know their community has their back. So they're more likely to step forward and say, you know what? I'll learn more. Uh, we have monthly cohort meetings, and some of the people who come to the cohort meetings are people who are just exploring this idea, meeting other people in their community, talking with other people in their community who are on the path, who do have kids at home, seeing how when problems arise, the the, the community responds, and saying, "Oh wow, like my community would have my back," and I'd be part of this, I'd be lo- like belonging within belonging. So by I I have this belonging, and that enables me to provide belonging for a child. Mm.
0: Oh, what's so beautiful about that too, is that, you know, when you think about the barrier to entry for this, and we've spoken about this personally over the years, you've said, you know, you and Jacqueline ought to adopt. And I was like, I want to help in other ways, but you know, we 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 just can't, we can't do that. But there are, there are maybe other ways that we can be supporters, maybe other ways we could be allies. And we've tried to support Second Nurture and we've tried to make connections, you know, in, in the community in other ways. Um, but I think what's beautiful about that model is it allows you to be supportive and to create belonging, as you said so beautifully, um, even if you're not prepared to take that obligation on or to to take that step, which is, you know, it's a giant and daunting one. And as you said, who knows, maybe you you put your toe in and you get involved. And then the next thing, you know, like, you know what, I'm we're doing it. We're going to foster a child or we're going to, you know, adopt a child. Um, so there's been surprises in terms of just how darn difficult it is what are some of the delightful surprises that you've encountered where it's like wow this worked and this is what happened mm. and here's here's how this kid was saved and here's how this family was supported I'm sure you've got a thousand anecdotes but maybe you could just share here's a, where a I few start to cry. that come to, <laughs> to mind and it's okay I, I will uh, not edit out the tears
1: <laughs> um, so there are 3 different families all single moms who had were fostering or had adopted a child and got a phone call that the bio mom had another child and in all 3 cases they first called their own mothers and then they called us and in all 3 cases they had not planned on having more than one child you know, it's like, I'm a single mom. I work full time. I didn't intend this. In every case, they said, because we know our community has our back, because we know Second Nurture's at our side, we're going to keep these siblings together. And that's something I hadn't thought about ahead of time that we're enabling siblings to stay together, not just a child to have a family, but for them to have their biological siblings with them as well. And that's been something that, that, Took me by surprise and was just really, really meaningful.
0: Hmm. So maybe stepping back a little bit in terms of your own personal story, which I referenced just a few minutes ago, um you and actually I first came to know you through Yossi because we had worked together uh, your uh your husband, because we had worked together on Babaga News, um, and some of our listeners might remember. Uh, the print version of Baba News, which is a fantastic uh, magazine for children that, um, that was the brainchild of Yossi. And I got to, I got to be a part of it for a while. And that's how I got to first meet you. And then when I came to know your family, I, I met all five of your children. Um, and so just give us a little bit of the backstory of how you and Yossi first decided to adopt yourselves for your own family.
1: You know, I've always known I was going to adopt kids since I was little and I grew up in a family that fostered. So I was up close with that and I saw kids without families and I always knew that I was going to adopt. And Yosef says that I never actually asked him. I just brought home the paperwork and said, we have a meeting. And he was like, you know him. I mean, he's game for anything. So he said, okay. <laughs> and that's just what happened. And so uh, we... I actually wasn't so familiar with fostering. And at that which point.
0: kids did you, you you already had your two of your daughters? By the when time this happened? we
1: adopted, we had two uh, two girls. As I say, we produce girls and import boys. So we had had the two big girls, and then we adopted Adari from Ethiopia, and then we had another daughter, Ashira. And after at Ashira, we adopted Samir, who is older than Ashira. So. He was the fifth to join our family, but he's the fourth chronologically.
0: So is his recollection, you think, is that accurate that you really just brought the paperwork and said? Yeah, hey. because
1: at one point I was saying to someone, oh. And, you and know, had you thought like, I thought we
0: discussed this or it was just. Yes, like, oh, exactly. Yeah, I got it. Okay.
1: And he actually, I didn't even know that we hadn't discussed it until years later when I was tell somebody asked me about it and I was saying, you know, that we decided to adopt. And he goes, and Yosef said like, honey, like it's really fine, but actually the truth is we never discussed it. You right. brought home paperwork and said, we're going to start. And I did it.
0: Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's like, oh my goodness, it feels so shocking. But we both know lots of people who had kids without ever <laughs> discussing it, you know, because <laughs> it was just like... It just happened. And, but when you think about foster, fostering or adopting, like it can't just happen. You actually do have to <laughs> fill out some paperwork, fill out some forms. And it means there's probably some thinking that goes on. But, but yeah, it is so peculiar because, um, uh, that's not how it, works all the time with children. And we're having this conversation on uh, the day that the Supreme Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe v. Wade. And so um, I'm thinking, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about all of those people who find themselves in a position where they might become a parent and they, they haven't planned it. They haven't prepared for that moment. It might be non-volitional. It might be as a result of a sexual assault, um, so there there wasn't even consent on that level. Um, but even if it was a consensual uh, encounter, there might not have, the intention might not have been to have a child. You know, uh, so it's it's a, it is a daunting kind of task and an extraordinary one. Um, just going back even further, you talked about. Your parents fostering, did they ever explain to you why they did that and how they came to that? Because I'm sure that wasn't so simple either, right?
1: Well, I mean, listen, my parents were really young when they were fostering. I mean, their first foster daughter, I must have been like five or something. and, And she was 16, from 16 to 18, I think she was with us. And my mom... Was like twenty six, so if you can imagine, and it in a so way like a kind younger
0: sister almost more than a you know child.
1: Say it again. And I'm saying
0: if your mom was twenty six and she had a sixteen year old foster child, it's almost like her little sister. Yeah, more than a kid, and then and you're the oldest of the sisters, right? So and so you were five, okay? okay. And who else was on the scene? Which other sisters were? Just Laura. Okay.
1: So. And in a way, it did fall on them because, you know, one of the other, you know, sort of rare Jewish families in Manchester, New Hampshire was this woman, uh, Dr. Deitch. She was, I mean, this doctor, and her mother was also a doctor, if you can imagine. Um, Selma Deitch, and she was wonderful. She's on family uh, children's services, some organization. And she said to my parents, would you foster? And they said, okay. Wow. So, so it runs kind of in felt. the family. You know, someone <laughs>
0: says, "You want to foster a kid?" Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. I'm in. Yeah. What are the hours? Um, <laughs> so and as you've created Second Nurture and and grown this, how have your own five kids responded, um, you know, and 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 participated in in the work?
1: I mean, not much sort of the same as my husband's work. I mean, it's not like, oh, the boys are like especially interested because it's fostering an adoption at all. Like they're all in their own worlds and, you know, I matter when I matter.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> you're a mom.
1: Because I'm a mom.
0: Yes. So for people who are listening who are interested in learning more, um, you, there, you have your book. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and uh, and sort of what that journey of writing your book has meant. And, uh, and of course people can find your book wherever they find books, but tell us a little bit about, about the journey of, uh, of writing that.
1: Sure. So the book is Casting Lots, Creating a Family in a Beautiful Broken World. And I found myself after Adari came home, kind of just journaling. And I realized that my relationship with God was shifting or I was sort of was deepening as a result of becoming his mom because, you know, fostering or adoption are so complex and they really kind of hold the microcosm of all of human experience. It's such joy and it's such tragedy. Like it's all intertwined in one and just sort of like pulling those threads and starting to explore uh, what they all meant and my relationship with God and And what it meant to be a human in this world and what our obligations are uh, really started coming to the fore and just started sort of writing this out in, in the form of a memoir, but with kind of like theological thoughts and musings and explorations. And it was the first time that I kind of had an understanding of what I think holiness is and
0: the first time you really understood holiness was when you writing this when book. You, it kind of oh, came writing to the me. book. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How, as a mom, having had the experience of, you know, your daughters and 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 your sons, is there anything that adoption taught you about parenting that you didn't, in some ways, already know? I it's, guess I'm I guess I'm asking you know what how is it. How is it different or more instructive or, um, or more challenging or surprising in any way for you? And I'm sure this is different for every parent, whether you've adopted a child or not, but, but in your experience.
1: Right. So something that, um, that adoptive parents i have heard say and that I found also to be the case is that when you adopt, you realize your child is not an extension of you or a representation of you. And to be able to kind of experience that in this way, like I look at my boys and I will say outright, they are so beautiful. Aren't they beautiful? Or like my girls, I also find them beautiful, but I would never sort of say that in the sense that like, I feel like, well, they're an extension of me and that would be immodest, you know, but but it's like deeper than that as well. And so this sense of being able to let go in this way of feeling represented by.
0: Hmm. hmm, And so in some ways that's taught you that about all your children. Yeah. So the experience of your sons taught you that about your daughters yeah. too. Because yeah. like
1: my love for all of them is infinite, but with the boys, they're not like an extension of us, you know, genetically. Right. And so, and realizing that, the girls are actually no more an extension of us, mm. actually, right? And to be able to let go of that, I think, is very freeing for, as a parent and for a kid.
0: It's really beautiful. Um, there's that Amichai poem about a child that being a rocket that you launch, um, and and then and then the rocket goes away. Um, and the 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 beauty of that, you know, that first of all the image of like you know the rocket can go to worlds that we could never go to and the rocket can you know it can take you into sort of dream space right um but also the like with and then the rocket's gone like it's it's gone it's way up there um and sort of as parenting is a process of letting go and knowing that that it's not it's not an extension of you it's not you um but it is something that you have responsibility for in a very powerful way, certainly when they're little you mm-hmm. know, and as they get older, hopefully less and less so right um, so one of the things that uh, I, I like to ask people on the podcast is you know what are what are some of the things since the focus is meaning? you know what are some of the things that keep you up at night or get you up in the morning and so when you think about one of the things you taught me about adoption foster care is just the staggering number of children out there who are in need of families. And what's somewhat, um, what, what is in some ways the most surprising part of that number is, is that there's so much that's not known, you know, it's like 140 to 160 million. Is that right?
1: So, well, it, 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 it depends how you count it worldwide. There, um, there are millions of children, and it's counted in different ways. One parent, no parents, kids who've been taken from their parents, you know. So it really depends how you count. And worldwide, it's so, uh, even more so than, way more so than the foster care system. It's very complex. Uh, because but the fact
0: that we don't even know the number, we don't know the number. with with any degree of certainty no. is astonishing. And then when you think about what's happening right now in Ukraine and the number of uh, orphans that are being created that, you know, even as we speak, it's just, it's just staggering and and absolutely astonishing. Um, a few weeks ago, I got the chance to speak, um, with some folks from Rwanda who actually they, um, I'll fly and I'll talk to you about them because they know Yossi, um, but, uh, at the youth village in Mm -hmm. Rwanda and got to learn about, you know, some of the survivors of genocide and the children of parents who'd been killed in the genocide. And, uh, and, you know, and so they're orphans kind of trying to find their way. So that was astonishing to me. And certainly when I think about the modest way that I'm able to support your work with Second Nurture, um. Uh, that is something that keeps me up at night, you know, thinking about children who we don't even know their names. They're not, they're not, they're not accounted for. And all my years of like being a summer camp counselor, you know, like all the time, think like, I think of all the times I counted my bunk, you know, there are 13 boys mm-hmm. in my bunk and it was like, okay, wait, okay. We're going from this activity to that activity, do a count, you know, and just the thought that there are children out there that no one's counting, mm-hmm. no one's accountable for them. Um, that keeps me up at night. What are what are some of the things about your work that uh, that either keep you up at night or inspire you to, to do the work uh, every morning when you get up?
1: I think exactly that, and it's both, right? It's what keeps me up at night and what keeps me going in the morning. Um, you know, uh, my sister just had this experience where she was so frustrated having to deal with UPS, and she's like, and this person answered, and I know they don't care, they don't know me, and I'm thinking, wow, like, Yeah, that's really frustrating. I also hate that feeling. But can you imagine if that was like the essence of your life in every realm, essentially being on hold with UPS, being on hold with the phone company, like there's nobody who's going to hear you or advocate for you and that you're just kind of floating out there without having your needs met on any single level. And... You know, we think about the extent to which we care for our kids and how every child deserves that. And there's it's actually one of my like most stories that blows me away about my kids is when we went to Ethiopia to get Zamir. He was four years old since our younger son. And the big girls came with me. And the first night we were with him, I sang Shema to him, which, of course, he had never heard before, before he went to sleep that night and kissed him goodnight, and he was sleeping in the same room as the girls. So I left the room. Uh, the next night, we put them to bed, and bad rabbi, Jew that I am, I forgot to sing shma, and I was just giving them kisses goodnight, and I started to leave, and he kept pulling me back. And I was like, good night, sweetie, good night, like waving, you know, because we didn't speak the same language. And finally, one of the girls goes, mama, maybe he wants you to sing shema, because you forgot. And I was like, he doesn't care if I sing <laughs> you know, get it at once. So I just said, well, I did forget. So I'll sing it. And I started to sing it. He laid his head down and closed his eyes. Oh my God, this child was so thirsty for just what any connection. And we mm. had, I'd created that connection that one time and he was not going to let it go.
0: Mm. As you're saying that I just see his face in my mind's eye, but I still think of him as a little guy, which he's not a little guy anymore, but, uh, but when we, so when we moved to Israel in 2009, he was what, 10 years old? He was in
1: 2009. No, he was born. Yeah. So he was eight.
0: Yeah. Okay. Eight. Wow. Um, what a beautiful image, just wanting a touch, love someone to, worry for him and care for him. And, um, what a gift that, uh, that you gave each other. So there are so many ways that we can help the work that you do, certainly by supporting Second Nurture because, um, it requires funding to make sure that these programs can happen so that you can have staff working in the synagogue communities where, um, you know, you're providing this kind of support. um, help help our listeners know how they can do that just by getting to the Second Nurture website. They can learn more uh, about the organization and also donate right online, learn more about the work, but also depending on where they find themselves, um, they could be part of one of the cohort communities.
1: Yes. Yeah, so first of all, definitely come to the number two to nurture.org. And there are lots of ways additionally to help or to find support for yourself. So You don't have to be a member of one of our partner communities to come and join and learn more about fostering. Or if you are fostering and you want that support, come join our cohort meetings. You will be very much welcomed. If you want to support, there's all kinds of ways that our families need help. And, you know, one thing that we do is that the the wider community, of course, supports the fostering families. And so sometimes it takes a long time to get what you need from DCFS or from your foster family agency, because they're just simply overwhelmed. And sometimes that family can't afford to get what they need. So if you have some specific expertise whatever it is, in the medical field, psychological field, whatever it might be, and you're willing to volunteer with even one of our families, please let me know. You know, we have needs that come up all the time, and we never want our families to wait for what they need.
0: It's so helpful, I think, you know, when when we're confronting something that seems so big and so daunting, you know, literally millions of children not, not accounted for in the world today. Um, literally millions of children who don't have a family, don't have a home and are vulnerable in all the ways that you suggested and thinking about human trafficking and other things that, you know, again, are the the types of things that are, it's the, it's the nightmare that should keep you up at night. Um, but then knowing that there are meaningful ways that we can move the needle and obviously, you know, second nurture all by itself can't solve such a, global problem but we can be part of a solution that might inspire others to do you know other types of outstanding work so i find so much hope in that uh notwithstanding the pain of some of these stories the the hope that i find is uh is palpable for father's day this year you put together um a beautiful program at temple Israel of hollywood here in los angeles and um we worked with other partner organizations, including she Ready mm-hmm. and uh, Comfort Cases.
1: Yeah. And the Book Foundation. And
0: the Book Foundation um, to create these, these comfort cases for foster kids. Can you just say a little something about that project and, and why something as simple as that, um, this backpack you know, that we, we would put together, why that could make a real difference in the life of a kid who is thrown into the foster care system?
1: Right. So uh, Rob Shear, who is the founder of Comfort Cases, was in foster care himself as a child. And he remembers moving into new houses with his stuff in garbage bags. And when he began to foster, when he and his husband began, began to foster, their kids in D.C., their kids showed up with their stuff in garbage bags. And he thought, how is this still the case? And the shame that goes along with that you know, is so profound. And so what he decided is that he's going to create this organization called Comfort Cases. Um, There's another organization in L.A. called Hope in a Suitcase that does similar work. And basically he provides cases of kids' own that are filled with books that, in this case, the Book Foundation supplied, and with, you know, other kinds of things that are fun but also necessities. He remembers having to use used things, you know, for, for hygiene and stuff like that that was just, you know, really uncomfortable just making sure that the kid
0: has a toothbrush and a comb and soap but also a blankie Mm -hmm. and also is very sweet make sure that everyone had a stuffed animal um and uh, and the book and crayons and things like that and and yeah it just seems um so basic that you would think about that the the kinds of things that can bring you comfort in a moment of trauma
1: So until a kid can be in a loving family, whether that's returning to their biological family or first families or being fostered, that to at least have like a semblance of dignity in moving from place to place, is terrifying enough for a child in the middle of the night, you know, to be suddenly moved to a place that they don't know how they will be treated, they don't know what the people are like, and to at least have something of of their own. And I wanted to add something you said before, which... um, Talking about you know you know moving the needle and making some change is that also when we make that kinds of change the kids themselves who grow up with love and support as opposed to on their own in the foster system they also become change makers because they can be become more fully human you know and I mentioned before that I kind of like I found a definition of holiness that works best for me. And that is that holiness is the opposite of waste and that a child, that we do not want to waste their hearts, their souls, their lives, that they should become fully themselves and only then can they also make change in the world.
0: Well, Rabbi Susan Silverman, that's so beautiful and, um, and a unique understanding of holiness and as I think about it, it's just so perfect that, you know, when you, when you think about helping something realize its potential, whatever that thing is, then it finds its special purpose, which is, you know, the Hebrew word uh, kadosh means something that's set apart for a for a special purpose. And, uh, if we believe as, as I know we do as Jews, that, you know, every human being has that spark of divinity. Every human being has something special to bring into the world. If we can nurture that and help that shine and be seen, then that we've brought holiness into the world. And the opposite is exactly that it would be, it would be a waste, a waste of that spark. So, um, Thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you do. And, and on a personal level, thank you for your friendship and for letting me be uh, a part of Second Nurture because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really important um, and special organization and I'm, I feel privileged to be connected to it.
1: I'm so happy you are. I love you and your whole family.
0: Well, that's our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks most of all to Rabbi Susan Silverman for making time for me. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Gorsi, our editor, Raz Husseini. Our theme song was composed by Maestro David Cates and myself and features a vocal from Josh Goldberg. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and share it with a friend. Maybe they'll be inspired by these conversations. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay tuned.